Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. And our, our thanks as well to Marilyn McAloon for that wonderful presentation on Operation Christmas Child. You know, with the passion and leadership of our own Gail Hack these many years, Harrison Hills has been able to bless countless children through this ministry. Never has it been more pressing to reach out to the nations with the message of the gospel. And sadly, as we look to the nations this week, it has brought unimaginable tragedy to our news feeds and our TV screens. Now, while we don't comment on every national or geopolitical event that comes along, we're here for the preached word of God. However, when we see events that carry great significance concerning our love of Christ and our knowledge of scriptures, when we witness global movements that carry enormous implications and reminders of the truth of scripture, we are obliged to make sure that the flock of God is attuned to them. We're all aware by now of the war in Israel along her borders. And to be sure, there is, well, there's an entire series that we could preach on the theological and the spiritual implications of what is happening there, but, but two that we'll briefly touch on. First, beloved, to be pro-life, as the title goes, it means exactly that. That we stand against the taking of any innocent life. Now while we lament the loss of any life, we mourn and we grieve over the loss of innocent life. Inside of the womb or outside of the womb. With the sixth commandment given to the people of Israel in Numbers 20 verse 13, God himself forbade the taking of innocent life. Thou shalt not murder. If you shed innocent blood, your life is forfeit. Why? God tells us from Genesis 9, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Nineteen times in the Old Testament speaks of the shedding of innocent blood and the penalty and the wickedness of doing so. Now in this war, those who would murder non-combatants who would slay women and children and infants in their beds, this is wicked. The same wicked men who would use women and children and infants as human shields, Scripture says this is wicked. And these who commit such acts should be forewarned by the words of Paul to the church in Rome. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Understand, saints, as we hear overt attempts and, and perhaps justification for the shedding of innocent blood and the, the whataboutisms, as the media and talking heads say, yes, Hamas did this, but oh, Israel did this. Understand, saints, to make a judgment from Scripture on who is right and who is wrong does not require one of the parties to be perfect. No one is perfect. No government, no military. They're full of fallen people. However, we can know by the guidance of Scripture 
We can know by the stated goals and objectives of both the warring parties. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Who ultimately is seeking after peace? And who seeks nothing but bloodshed? Which side breathes out violence with videos too horrific to speak of? And which side uses force, uses the sword with the aim of bringing and restoring peace? In this war we're now witnessing in Israel, understand that if one side stopped fighting or had not attacked, there would still be peace. If the other side stopped fighting, their country would no longer exist. There is a thirst for blood and conflict that characterizes and defines one side. And it has been prophesied from Genesis that he will be a wild donkey of a man, that he will be at odds and at conflict with everyone around him. And so it is, so Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son who Hagar bore Ishmael. Hagar, Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, have been at battle ever since. Of course, Isaac being the line of the Jewish people and Ishmael being the line of the Arabic people. Now, that's a whole other subject, but a quick plug. If you missed the message in our series of last things titled Islam, I would highly encourage you to dive into that one. It will be encouraging and informative, especially in light of our current events. We support... And we pray for the nation state and for the people of Israel, not because they're perfect or because they are blameless in all they do. That's not the standard. Beloved, we have an entire Old Testament showing the Jewish people and the Israelites turning their back on God and doing wrongly. But God has made a promise and a covenant with his people. He will keep it. Why do we love the nation and the people of Israel? Listen to Yahweh. Your Lord God, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1. 1. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. 1 Kings 10.9. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all people, as it is to this day, Deuteronomy 10.15, but chose the tribe of Judah, Psalm 78, Mount Zion, which he loved. Why do we love Israel? Because God loves Israel, and he set his heart upon her. He set his heart upon her. God is not done with Israel. Understand, beloved, they have a role to play in the consummation of a new Jerusalem, of a new heavens and a new earth. How do we know this? What about this argument or that argument? How do we know this? You'd be shocked the number of anti-Semitic things we're hearing out of Christian circles now that care nothing for the nation of Israel. How do we know this? How do we know that we're reading Scripture correctly here? with an eye to the future into Israel? Well, there are many reasons. We don't have time for them all today, but how about just put one in our back pocket for this morning? Looking to Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, the Lord begins speaking about all these various nations and people groups. And in fact, we read about it this morning in adult Sunday school just by chance. 
But listen, Deuteronomy reads, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Let me ask you something, saints. Let me ask you something. You ever met a Girgashite? Ever met one? Can we fly to a faraway land and be introduced to an Amorite? Can you take me to their capital? Can we have lunch with a Perizzite or a Hivite? Tell me, where are the Jebusites? You ever met a Hittite at the shopping mall? Now, how about an Israelite? How about an Israelite? They're everywhere. Never in history has a people group been scattered throughout the world and reformed a nation. Never. Never has a people group been more universally hated whose destruction has been more sought after, and yet they remain. Down through all of history, men and nations have sought the destruction of the Jewish people to wipe out the Israelites once and for all. Why? Why? Satan knows the Scripture. The demonic forces know the Scripture. And they know that God has a future plan for His people, for Israel. They know that these are the apple of God's eye, his chosen people. Paul declares in Romans 11, say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Beloved, we pray for Israel, not in her perfection or in her infallibility, but as Gentiles who have been grafted into the vine, we had better understand our future as Christians are tied to Israel's future. We are to love what God loves or to hate what God hates. So, beloved, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued our swim in the, well, the awful glory of the Garden of Gethsemane. Having grasped the, the magnitude and the stakes of that dark night, it's, well, it's really been a veritable sea of emotion and strain as we have beheld the beauty of our Savior in such a state. Having taken his, his inner circle into the garden, we took great pains, did we not, to be right there with him. Seeing the condition of our Lord as he prayed with, with an earnestness that only divine perfection could grasp. But yet to internalize the realities that caused our Lord so much anguish. Well, we had to look deeply to the descriptions of that night given in scripture. We had to look to ekthombeo in the Greek, did we not? This horrendous wonderment and amazement that Jesus experienced that needed to be explained asking how God in human flesh could experience something new or bewildering. And of course, within that truth and understanding that truth lies the agony of the garden. That explained the anguish of our Lord. 
Jesus said it was an anguish that nearly stopped his heart. And even though over our last two messages we've, we've plumbed the depths of, of doctrine and theology to understand what could make the God-man sweat blood, to experience stressors to nearly stop his heart, contained in the blackness of that night, well, did we not behold such beauty? We beheld the heart and the compassion of our Savior. That in the midst of such agony, three times we saw Jesus' thoughts and concerns go to his disciples. Three times in the text, the good shepherd arose from unimaginable prayer to tend to his sheep. And behold, the sheep did sleep. But this is no time for sleep. For their sleep was one that betrayed their hearts. It betrayed their hearts that were sorrowful and depressed. Meaning to give in to this sleep at this moment was to take counsel of their fears. And to be overwhelmed with confusion and fatalism and grief and their bodies shut down in sleep. Temptation was there. They mustn't give quarter to such feelings. So they were commanded to watch and pray. Of course, what vast oceans of application we took for our own lives with, with Jesus in his, his most vulnerable state as he rises from his prayer triumphant with perfect submission to the Father, having even been ministered to by an angel, Jesus has now been strengthened for the road ahead. And our final text last week brought this scene of intimate anguish and prayer to a close with Jesus telling Peter, James, and John that it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Well, today we pick up at the pinnacle scene of betrayal and treachery. No betrayal in history can compare. None can compare as there's never been such perfection to ever be betrayed. Recognizing, beloved, that the depth of betrayal is not calibrated by the depravity of the one doing the betrayal, but by the purity of the one, the innocence of the one who's being betrayed. By that standard, this is the pinnacle. Suffering every injustice on our behalf. And as we continue our scene today, a traitor's kiss will set in motion a series of of rapid-fire sequential events that will culminate in the perfect sacrifice made for sin on our behalf. So with that, let us look to our text, part three of Gethsemane this morning. Mark 14, 43 through 46. Mark 14, 43 through 46. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up. And with him was a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas, having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi. And kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue our, our journey of the garden, 
Lord, it has been our, the pain of our heart and it has been the joy of our heart to be in this garden with you and to watch not only the disciples in their weakness, Lord, but you and your triumphant submission to the Father. Lord, as we look into the blackness of betrayal, Lord, these are hard topics for us. Lord, ones that require our heart be prepared and tilled to receive it. Holy Spirit, we ask that with every need that's present here, that you would cause this text to meet that need. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, we have much to cover, of course, as always. So let's dive right into the meat this morning, beginning with verse 43. Verse 43 reads, And immediately while he was still speaking, one of the twelve came up. Now pause there for a moment. Now, we've not seen Judas since, well, Jesus gave Judas leave to go do what he had purposed to do in the upper room, to carry out his treachery and his evil. And thus, Judas was not there, remember, for all the beautiful teaching that we read about in John. The high priestly prayer in the upper room that night, all that was missed. Instead, he had other plans, and he was a very busy man. In a very short amount of time, Judas had a lot to arrange. Now, there are quite a few things that we know and that we can actually piece together about Judas's path of treachery here. When Jesus told Judas to go, he would have left that upper room. Recall, that's very close to the temple. And he would have first gone directly to that temple. And there in the court of the Sanhedrin, Judas would tell them the news that they've been wanting to hear they'd been waiting for. Ever since Jesus caused them to lose face, ever since he caused them to lose money, when he flipped the bazaars of Annas and the table on its head, driving them all out, it was truly then and there that Jesus' death warrant was signed. They just needed someone on the inside to give Jesus up. So they were, of course, thrilled at Judas' offer. And, of course, they had an offer of their own, didn't they? They had an offer of their own. In fact, their offer of Judas, offer to Judas of 30 pieces of silver told everyone just what they thought of Jesus. 30 pieces of silver was the requisite price for the killing or the death of a slave in the Old Testament. That was the replacement cost of a slave. Judas knew that amount. He knew what it meant. How heavy those coins must have felt in his pouch. <laughs> not only does Judas not hold him to be Messiah, but he won't even value him as a free man, just a slave. Can we detect the devilish hatred and the demonic undertones in those 30 pieces? So first stop for Judas is to the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. They're all gathered. Remember 71, 72 of them in the Sanhedrin telling them that I know where Jesus is going to be. It's out of view of the people. It's perfect. It's night. But the catch here is that the Sanhedrin can't put anyone to death. That's exactly what they want, right? Only Pilate can do that. So they have to involve the Romans in this arrest if Jesus is to be killed. Well, out of the Sanhedrin court, a, a very short walk for Judas, he went over to Fort Antonia. That's where Pilate was. That's where your Roman garrisons are, your dispatch were. That was basically Roman HQ for Jerusalem. 
Now, you'll recall from our teaching on the temple that this was basically a a four-towered fortress that was literally alongside. It was almost attached to the temple, technically a minor, small road right across from it, where they could stand in the turrets of Fort Antonia, and they could look down into the temple, and they could watch, and they could survey it. So with the Sanhedrin's approval of the plan, Jesus would have, Judas would have scurried over to Fort Antonia with the request and the demand from the chief priests, telling them that we have an insurrectionist on our hands. It's Passover, tensions are high, and oh, by the way, they just had an attempted insurrection by a little guy you might have heard of named Barabbas. See, I thought Barabbas was a robber. He was, but he was also an insurrectionist. Mark 15, verse 7 tells us the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So they had just put one down, and they weren't uncommon. The Jews were a zealous people. Even Simon the Zealot was one of Jesus' own disciples. They had a plan, and this checked all the boxes. Now remember, primarily, the chief priests had one concern, didn't they? Over and over in Scripture... The crowds, the people, they wanted to do this in the dead of night, preferably outside the walls. Gethsemane was perfect. Now back to our text, we understand how we've gotten here, the stage is set. And how now does Mark describe Judas in verse 43? Judas, one of the twelve. Now this is meant to drive home his treachery. Not just Judas but Judas, one of the twelve. Now, I know it's inconceivable to us how anyone could spend three years at the master's feet and do something like this. Judas is one of the most tragically fascinating figures in Scripture. Back in August, we preached a message titled, A Vessel Prepared. And if you missed that, we did a deep dive into Judas, into the theology of Judas, if you will. How do we explain him? And that branched into so many deep, rich areas of of doctrine and application. So we've covered that in depth. Verse 43 goes on that Judas came up, and with him was a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now here we have to pause. We kind of have to do some Hollywood myth-busting, if you will. Now, so many biblical scenes in our mind are unfortunately kind of informed and influenced by by movie depictions or even artistic renderings. There have been quite a few places through Mark where we've had to dispel some common perceptions. And here is one of those. Now, right now, if you were to picture this scene of Jesus' arrest in your mind's eye, the the dark night, this, this crowd with swords and clubs, what do you see? How many do you see? Now, if you go with Hollywood, you'd maybe say 10 to 20 people, maybe. That's your scene. They've got Judas, a few religious leaders in their garb, right? Maybe a gaggle of soldiers, something like that. Beloved, that's not even close. Consider John's account in his gospel. John 18.3 reads this. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Well, inquiring minds want to know, how many is a cohort? A Roman cohort. 
Now, a cohort is considered to be the equivalent of a modern military battalion. A Roman cohort had 480 men. Now, on top of that, you had officers. You had those who were sent by the chief priests as well, each branch, right? You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They would have all had their representatives there. All the people that were associated with the supply and the support of that cohort. So saints understand it is likely that well over 600 men exited the eastern gate that dark night. From where the Garden of Gethsemane sits, you can still see it today. I can picture it in my mind's eye. Out of the eastern gate, with torches blazing across the Kidron Valley, Jesus knew they were coming. And why do we belabor those details? Of course, that we might know Scripture rightly. But understand, beloved, nobody's running. Nobody's running. Jesus' face is set like a flint toward Calvary. There's no fear in the face of death. It reminds me of Chrysostom. He's an early church father, archbishop of Constantinople. And when he was being threatened with death for his preaching by the empress Eudoxia, he sent word to her, Chrysostom did, saying, Go tell her that I fear nothing but sin. 600 torches didn't faze Jesus at all. The blood from his brow was being made sin for us. That distressed him so. Physical death is but a momentary passage. Eternal death, the wages of sin, that is to be feared. And so we see the Kidron Valley would have been lit up as they came through. It wasn't 10 to 20 guys sneaking up on Jesus. Let them come. And we must see these huge numbers, this battalion, this cohort... For when Jesus says later on in verse 48, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Basically, all this for me? <laughs> a cohort? It's like sending 20 SWAT teams to arrest a shoplifter. But to hear the Sanhedrin tell it to Pilate, they had a revolutionary on their hands, threatening to destroy the temple, claiming he was a king. Of course, there's no higher king than Caesar. And yet, consider what interesting bedfellows we have. Coming together for a common enemy together here in our text. Quite literally, none of these groups liked each other. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees, and vice versa. Scribes and the Sadducees, the same. None of them liked the Romans. Ah, oh, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Secular and religious forces are glad to come together. To snuff out the light of Christ, if it were possible. There's nothing new under the sun. Beloved, we see the same today. Ask your average college student who's being indoctrinated into leftism. How does one advocate for the homosexual agenda with great fervor, flying the rainbow flag? And next to it fly the Islamic flag of Palestine who would throw that same homosexual off a rooftop if they found out. Because both worlds view come from the same source. They can live in harmony with one another. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You will never hear a criticism of Islam from homosexual communities. Even though they would be killed for that offense. 
in those countries. Not a word. We can unite. Romans, Pharisees, Sadducees, we can unite in our common hatred. Nothing has changed. Two groups who would literally like to kill each other will work together because they hate Christ more. And so it is. By the way, beloved, there's no shortage of countries today, right now as we speak, where I would not be arrested for saying what I just said. You need to understand that. And they're not across oceans. So all are present here in the garden. The text describes clubs. That's your temple guard. Swords, that's your Romans. Around 600 in total. That changes the scene a little bit for us, doesn't it? 600, wow. Now back to our text, verse 44. Verse 44. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away. Under guard, correct. <laughs> now, why a kiss? Why such an intimate greeting? Well, we don't know Judas's heart, but we do know that Satan had entered Judas. That at least gives us a trajectory for his actions, doesn't it? Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a deluder. He often has a flair for the dramatic in his possessions. Thinking about the various examples of that that we see throughout Scripture... So what is the most hurtful, the most deceptive way the Son of God could be betrayed? Just go ahead and think of a worse way than with a kiss. I, I sat there for a good long while. I couldn't think of one. It's almost poetic in its treachery. That dish was served up cold as could be. In fact, we'll see the reality and the blackness of that kiss here in our next verse, but that really drives this home. But notice with me quickly this last part of verse 44. It's very interesting that Judas seems to be running the show here, doesn't he? He's got the spotlight. He's giving the marching orders, as it were. Of course, it was Judas who instigated this betrayal from the beginning. Other accounts have it actually being Judas who even gave the order to seize him. Understand the treachery. But notice the end here. It's easy to miss. Who is it that is to arrest Jesus? Now, to be sure, both the secular and the religious are, are here to do the deed. Swords are at the ready. But it says, lead him away under guard. That is religious verbiage, under guard. This is the temple guard. Pretty ironic, isn't it? With all these swords, that you're going to take this insurrectionist with a religious club. Surely someone with this dangerous. And yet Judas is completely deluded here. Now we can't catch it in the English, but Judas's directive is to what? To lead him. There's a command that's given in the present imperative for our Greek lovers out there. The present imperative, meaning lead him away and keep leading him away. Implying that Jesus would try to escape. <laughs> Watch him closely. Isn't that remarkable? Judas's words betray his absolutely deluded heart. One that is darkened. One that has been given over to Satan. So look with me to verse 45 now, beloved. Finally, a most famous scene in all of Scripture. Verse 45. And after coming, Judas, 
having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Well, before we can look to the famous kiss of death, there's an event that happened in the garden that happened that highlights like none other the utter depravity and, and really the calloused conscience of Judas. Not only that, but the power that was on display that night. Now, I try and stick with Mark's account, but in trying to capture the, the treachery of the kiss, we need the context of what had just happened. And one question, honestly, I will ask with all humility and eternity is why the Holy Spirit did not include this scene in all four Gospels. Yet it is unique to John's account, and we must see it. So turn with me, beloved, in your Bibles to John's account of the garden. Look with me to John 18. Very quickly, flip over there, beloved. John 18. Rustle those pages. Let's hear them. All right, it's the most beautiful sound, isn't it? John 18, verses 4 and 6. John 18, 4 through 6. Look at this. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So, they, so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now understand, this is a, this is a Moses burning bush moment here. Understand the language Jesus uses. I am he. Jesus gives them the, the Aramaic spoken version of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. I am that I am. I am he. The word for he is actually not in the original Greek. Jesus has assigned to himself the title of Exodus 3.14, I am. Jesus does this all over the Gospels. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up their stones to stone him. Why? Because there's no doubt what he was saying. He does the same here in the garden. And we witness the power of his name. Why did Jesus do this? Why speak out a word and level this cohort to the ground? What's the point? Don't for a second think that you are taking me against my will. You are not in control. No one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. You may come and bind me, but you know full well who is in full command and authority. This is not Satan's rodeo. The crucifixion, the crushing of the son is the pleasure of the father. You will do what you will do. Do what you came to do. You will no doubt, but have no doubt, when you arrest me, it is according to my will, not yours. And we highlight this incredible event in the garden because it is through this indescribable, incredible display of divinity and power that Judas yet persists. How deluding is sin? The heart that sin has calloused can no more turn to God than a dead fish can swim upstream. Imagine persisting in the face of that display. 
Yet here we are. Back to our text again, beloved. Turn back with me to Mark, if you would. Again, we're in verse 45. And after coming, Judas, having immediately gone to him, said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now again, as we dive into the language here, it's going to dispel for us some, some Hollywood images that we tend to have. And the picture most have seen, the, the depiction we all see how Judas almost approaches Jesus in a solemnity, doesn't he, right? And he gives him some kind of ceremonial peck on the cheek. Well, to have that image is to radically miss the depraved blackness of this kiss, of this encounter. Jesus, Judas approached Jesus directly, walks right up to him. And we actually even know how Judas did that by the description of the kiss. Now, our word to laser in on here illuminates that scene is katafileo. This is the action and the description of, of Judas's famous kiss. Now, of course, you'll recognize our root word there, phileo, right? Philadelphia, love, city of love, brotherly love. Back in verse 44, when, when Judas said, whomever I kiss, that word there, kiss, there is phileo. Now, here in verse 45, this is kata phileo. Kata takes phileo and it explodes it. It intensifies it. Meaning Judas did not just come up and give Jesus a peck on the cheek of brotherly phileo, of brotherly love. Judas has come to Jesus with arms wide open. Probably a smile on his face. And he has embraced Jesus and has fervently, kata phileo, showered Jesus with fervent kisses. We have to hear the other four uses of this word in Scripture to really grasp the treachery of this kiss. Luke uses it three times. Listen, first speaking of the woman who was a sinner with the, the alabaster vial of perfume. In Luke 7, verse 38, listen. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head. And here it is, kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Again, Luke 7, 45, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Kata phileo, fervently, passionately. And finally, in Acts 20, Paul, he's been sent off to Ephesus, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Kata phileo. Is the treachery starting to come into view, saints. Judas approached Jesus with a lavish affection. And it wasn't a little peck. This was an ostentatious display. With the evil in his eyes, Judas was a smiling assassin. Of course, bringing with him what would be known in history as the kiss of death. With his words, with his actions... Well, you would think that Judas in this very moment was the most devout disciple of Jesus. Of course, Proverbs 27.6 is drawn to our mind. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. 
Can we not hear the lament of David in Psalm 55? Oh, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you. A man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked among the worshipers. Yet as always, we seek to show the beauty of Christ in our text. The divinity, the sovereignty of Christ in our text. Here, if we look to Luke's parallel passage, no need to turn there. Luke 22, verse 48, we see... Well, something incredible that's easily missed. Recall that Jesus asked Judas a question as he came for his lavish display of treacherous affection. Jesus asked Judas, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, most of us are familiar with this exchange. But if we examine the context closely, what has Judas not even done yet? He hasn't kissed Jesus. The verse says, as he approached, Jesus says this. Meaning he tells Judas what he's going to do. He's telling Jesus, I already know your heart. I already know what you're going to do, and I know how you're going to do it. <laughs> and yet Judas persisted. Now one would think that would stop Judas in his tracks. But a cohort of Roman soldiers being blown over hasn't done that. Three years of sleeping under the stars around the fire with Jesus in every intimate moment of teaching hasn't done that. A front row seat to every miracle for three years hasn't done that. What a tragedy. Beloved, understand, Judas's horrific place in hell is not because he's the infamous Judas. Its degree is horrific because of the opportunity and the light placed before him. I tremble for those who visit church and leave unchanged, who hear the gospel and go away unmoved. Such a high cost to hear that message to be exposed to that light and not heed it. Beloved, Scripture is clear. There are degrees of punishment. It will be more tolerable for Sodom in that day than for you, Jesus said, because of the light that's shown among you. Sodom was bad. Their judgment will be sure and just. But Judas lived with the Master. His fate will be far worse. Those are Jesus' words. The caution of Judas to any unbeliever listening. If you will not turn, it is better to run away from the light than to be accountable for hearing it. Jesus said it would have been better for Judas to have never been born. What you hear, what we hear today is held to our account. Beloved, the gospel is wonderful news to those being saved. To the rest of the world, the gospel's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. Hear the warning of Judas. Hear it and don't miss it. I plead with you. 
Judas stands as a stark warning to all, beloved, that we can't play church. That they can sit and say and do all the right things. They can sit under the exposition of Scripture Sunday after Sunday and yet have an unconverted heart. They believe that they can hear the gospel at no cost. But the cost is infinite. If one will not turn to Christ, it is much better to not hear another word of this gospel than to be accountable and chargeable one more time. Even unto Judas, one more time, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Let me show you my omniscience and divinity one more time to your face. And yet Judas persisted. Beloved, this pulpit has done you no favors if we do not take hold of the warning of Judas to be exposed to the light, to sit under the teaching of Scripture demands a response, a turning of the heart and the mind. Now, the gospel is often called an invitation. I have no idea where that phrase came from. It's probably another evangelical cliche. The gospel message is not an invitation. It's a command. It's a command. Repent and believe is an imperative. It is a command. One that Judas heard many times. Many times. Indeed, back to our text, how does Judas address Jesus? What does he call him? Rabbi. Teacher. In fact, in Matthew's account, he says, Hail, Rabbi. And to be sure, we can look to the earlier times of Jesus' ministry as the, the disciples were still learning, and they would sometimes refer to Jesus as Rabbi. But something happened about midway through those Gospels, about midway through those ministries. Indeed, if we look all the way to the end of the Gospels, Consider the very end of John's gospel. There they sit on the shores of Capernaum. Listen to the change. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Judas would only ever know Jesus as rabbi teacher. His followers know him as Lord. Curious, Lord, the one who has charge over my life, whose commands I will joyfully live by. Curious, Lord, the one who has the right as our sovereign maker to tell us how we are to live. Many came to Jesus as rabbi. Many. That title is all over the Gospels. We must come to him as Lord. 
final verse, verse 46, beloved, verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. No charges are given, for there are no charges to be made. None but lies will ever be presented. Yet there's no resistance by our Lord. He doesn't need to defend himself. Even as the greatest injustice in history is being put into motion by a kiss. And our Savior submits triumphantly to the will of the Father. What a display. To see wicked men lay hold of the second person of the Trinity. It's good that we have to pause there. It's almost too much to comprehend your Savior in shackles. Yet even as the hour is dark, our Savior sparkles with such radiant beauty, glorious sovereignty, and undiminished divinity. Let us not only behold the warning of Judas, beloved, let us behold our King, the salvation that has come in Christ, the path that led directly through that fretful garden has brought victory over death and hell. Victory over sin. And to God be all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are stuck between two extremes this morning. Lord, of such sorrow and pain to see someone like Judas, Lord, to even see parts of our own heart <laughs> contained within the story of Judas. But Lord, such joy to see your triumphal submission to the Father. Lord, to see your patience that you dealt with your disciples in. Lord, to see your absolute power and divinity blown over everyone there. Lord, it is too much for us to comprehend. But Lord, as we leave you today with your arms shackled behind you, Lord, all we can see is victory. All we can see is the empty tomb. And Lord, that you are seated at the right hand forevermore. And that you live to make intercession for us, your saints. And that you are alive. And in that we rejoice this day. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.